Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Ryan Benson is back for another spirited and I will confidently say interesting and informative interview. We last spoke on the episode which dropped on February 12th. And that was an overview of the intersection of family law and forensic accounting. I'm going to reintroduce Ryan briefly. He's a chartered and forensic accountant, chartered business evaluator, and fraud examiner. If you are interested in learning more about Ryan, I suggest you visit his website, bensonindustries.com. Our topic for today is income, but as part of that discussion, we also touch on a number of related subjects from family law and accounting. And because Ryan is a returning guest at the end of our interview, rather than talk about food, which is my standard subject at the end of my chats, we talk about country music. Enjoy. Welcome back, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Uh, sounds like you fell in love with either podcasting or being interviewed since we last talked on February 12th, or both. It's great to have you back. In the last episode, which was an overview of forensic accounting in the context of family law, we covered so much ground. So I thought today we could drill down on a single subject. But before we get to that, it sounds from our exchanges around this episode that we have another one in the works, and that one will be called The Premeditated Divorce, and that was your terrific title. I love it, Ryan. Thank you very much. We will talk, for example, about how to spot preparations someone may be making for a separation, financially speaking. Can't wait to start working with you on that one. Today, we have an interesting topic as well, which is income. And I'm going to use another phrase here, which we use in the context of family law, uh, with which my listeners may already be familiar, and that is income for support purposes. And yes, we are going to have some hypotheticals so that the concepts we explore can be applied to practical life situations. Most people understand the term income in a general way. We want to earn it, which is good. We have to pay tax on it, which is not so great. But that is one of the certainties of life. Do you know the others, Ryan? Isn't the obvious version of this death, right? <laughs> yes, I think but it was we're not death talking and... about that. We're not talking about that. But I think change is definitely probably the most important driver of life is change. And it can be uncomfortable and it can be stressful and painful even. But it's often positive, right? And in divorce specifically, this means leaving a bad and sometimes quite frankly horrific situation and moving to a new and better life. But what do people need to do this? Well, we need income. The income to support ourselves, 
and our family and our children, paying expenses, investing for the future and the enjoyment of life. But that's different from income for tax, isn't it? Of course, we're talking about income for support. And I know that currently we're, we're, we've been changing kind of the verbiage around family law. And I want to take a step back and we talk about income for support. And I want to reframe this for people out there who are perhaps support payers and call it income to provide, because that's what you're doing. If you're making these payments, you're, you're providing now for your family. And that's ultimately something to be proud of. So let's dive in. That's a very good way of putting it, Ryan, and it helps my listeners understand this phrase that we use in family law from a slightly different perspective, a more practical perspective. So every Canadian who earns an income is obligated by the Income Tax Act to file an income tax return every year. So people become familiar with different categories of income. And they realize that it's not just income set out on their pay stub if they are a T4 employee, for example. There are other categories of funds received by an individual, which may be described by the Income Tax Act as income and which may be taxable. And these are entered in different spots on the income tax return. I will let you talk a bit more, Ryan, I promise. I just wanted us to set the scene for our listeners so that they can uh, hear our productive dialogue. One of the first things, one of the first things I discuss with my clients in whose cases support is an issue is the fact that income can be viewed a bit differently for the purposes of taxation on the one hand and for the purposes of family law on the other. What I mean here is the following. What CRA may view as properly includable in income or deductible from it will not necessarily be treated the same way by family court. And we're going to give my listeners some specific examples of what I have just said. But for the moment, let's work with the concept of different measuring sticks for income for taxation purposes and for family law. Do you disagree with anything I have said so far, Ryan? No, uh, I don't. And I think one of the things to talk about here, if uh, if I can, is the, the courts and, and law have this precondition that all people should be tre- treated equally, in that the law is applied the same way for everyone irrespective of circumstance. And I want to highlight something that really changes the framework of the question at hand. And that is that the Income Tax Act, beyond just being a codification of rules regarding taxes and and procedures, this is really just a government-enforced incentive system. So certain deductions are allowed, some are disallowed, because the government's trying to incentivize certain behaviors in the population. So you have RSP contributions, which are deductible from income, or your TFSA account where income is tax exempt, and the government's trying to get you to save money effectively. Similarly for corporations and small businesses specifically, you see a drastically lower income tax rate than you would for a person. And why? Well, the government's trying to incentivize the company to reinvest this profit for growth. But when you take the money out personally, all of a sudden you're back to normal personal tax rate levels again. So with any incentive-based system, there are ways to minimize your overall tax burden through either legitimate tax planning or uh, more avoidance slash evasion type behavior. So as forensic accountants and in family law, and I'm finally getting to my point here, In the context of of this, what we want to do is unwind and unravel this complex incentive behavioral pattern and ask the question, what is this person truly earning per year? That is your income for support. If it's an employee, it's more simple. Sometimes T4 income will suffice, and we can talk about that. When it's self-employed, 
This question is much more nuanced and complex, and we have to make adjustments to report a taxable income to reflect their real-life earning capacity. So what you have just explained, it's a way of explaining these two concepts in a way I've never heard before, and I think it's very useful. You have just explained that while an average taxpayer is entitled to take advantage of some incentives offered by the Income Tax Act, when support comes into play, as you said, these incentives, though permitted by the CRA, have to be unwound because the family courts and family law legislation does not permit payors to take advantage of those same incentives. Did I restate that correctly, Ryan? Is this what you were getting at? Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Good. Then I got it. I'm glad to hear that. So whenever support becomes an issue in a family law case, income comes into play as well. I know you know this, and most of my listeners probably do as well. Our legislation, meaning written law, definitely and very pointedly says throughout Canada that when support is an issue, each party, the potential payor and potential recipient of support, must disclose all of their sources of income to one another and to the court if the court is involved. So that means listing all income categories and then providing paper backup to prove that income, how it's paid, how often it's received, in what form, in what amount. Some types of income for family law purposes are very straightforward to figure out. So let's introduce our first hypothetical. Sam works in a factory based on a shift work schedule. He gets opportunities to work overtime, and he's a member of a union. He will be paying child support for two children, and the question is how do we determine what his income for support purposes is? Well, line 15,000 of his income tax return says $67,000. So that is our starting point because... Let's clarify here that for the purposes of calculating support obligations, we use gross income and not net income. In other words, income before taxes. What else do you see here, Ryan? I see a few things, but I mean, I think it's a fairly straightforward case to deal with. Uh, The union dues being the first thing to consider, I mean... Effectively, he's forced to pay this, right? And for income for support, what we're asking ourselves is what is the kind of available income to this person on a, on a pre-tax basis? So for me, considering that the union dues are, are a forced payment as a result of his employment, it would make sense to me that, that these would be deducted from his income for support. So if it's $67,000 and he pays say $2,000 in union dues, whatever the case may be, you would, you would take that off. The, the bigger one that I see here is the overtime factor and the variability of earnings as a result of this work. And there are a couple issues embedded in this. So my first question is, what do the last three years of earnings look like? Because if you see $67,000 And let's say he's been making the same amount more or less over the past few years. I think it's it's a good barometer to say that that's likely is going to be his income on a go forward basis. One of the things, though, with unions is that often overtime opportunity and pay are often based on seniority. So one of the things that I'm, I'm sitting on in the back of my head is that these overtime hours and his ability to earn may potentially drastically expand in the future. So that would lead to his earnings becoming higher over time to the point that they may be uh, even materially higher based on his proclivity to work these hours. But if it's been lower historically, and say the $67,000 number is a high barometer, 
mark here. We may want to take some of that into consideration. And so there would have to be a provision clearly in any separation agreement that provides for annual exchange of income disclosure, so tax returns, notices of assessment, so that any increases in Sam's income over the years while the children remain eligible for child support are captured. So if seniority does kick in and if more overtime is available to Sam, the children would benefit that by way of increase in child support. And just tracking back briefly to the union dues, your explanation for the reasoning behind the deduction is terrific. And in fact, the child support guidelines in a schedule specifically talk about deducting union dues. So this is a common example. This same example is a common situation and fairly straightforward and I think unlikely to involve someone like you, an expert like you. Thousands and thousands of family law lawyers throughout Canada complete these types of calculations every day. And we will come back to the child support guidelines and what they are and uh, how they assist when we get further into types of income in which you would become involved. So, Ryan, here's hypothetical number two. Hillary is a human resource manager at a small company, and her line 15000 income from her job at the company is $78,000. Hillary runs a small business on the side. And when I say on the side, I don't mean in an illegal way. It's a sole proprietorship, meaning that it is not incorporated. But rather, what Hillary earns from it and also the expenses of the business are recorded on her personal income tax return and taxed as part of her income. Ryan, I see that you are perking up now because, uh, dear listeners, we can actually see each other during these interviews, uh, but you only get to hear the sound. So is this because... Uh, this is the type of scenario in which your forensic skills may be required. And let me just finish off the hypothetical before you uh, chime in. And I can really tell you're eager. Hillary's side business has really taken off. In fact, it's done so well that Hillary is hoping to eventually give up her job as human resources manager and focus on her little business. In the year in question, the business revenues are $52,000, meaning she brought in that amount of money from the business, but it also had various expenses, which Hillary deducted on her income tax return. Some of these expenses related to the cost of running the website, which is essential to her operating the business, but some related to her home from which she runs its day-to-day operations. So, Ryan, I'm going to let you speak now, promise. What do you see in this hypothetical? <laughs> I, I've been laughing that you felt the need to point out that this is not an illegal business, and I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> but in in fairness, when, when I'm looking at this hypothetical, these types of files scare me. Um, because there's so much uncertainty over a horizon period that it becomes really difficult to predict what's going to happen here to this person. So my first question that I'm going to start with on a hypothetical like this is, is this what I'll call a real business in the sense that it's producing a real service or a real product or is it kind of one of those quotation mark businesses that, that you see out there? And I, I ask that because I'm, I'm trying to assess some reasonability or expectation of, of profit on a go forward basis. And let me tell you where I'm going here. Since the last recession back in 2008, specifically, we've seen a lot of these quotation mark businesses that I, that I call. And 
a lot of them can be kind of loosely defined as a multi-level marketing company. Have you heard of those multi-level marketing? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah, I, I, I tend to call them pyramid schemes. So, and I actually had a meeting. So I had a meeting uh, when I first started my practice to somebody who was really excited and, and trying to, you know, talk to me about this business opportunity or whatever it was at the time. I think it was like protein shakes or something crazy. And she was explaining this whole system. And it's, you know, this is a great product and I'm an entrepreneur and I'm, I'm selling this product and uh, you can sell it to your friends and family and contact them and, and have meetings with them about it. And then you bring in salespeople underneath you and then you can get a commission of their sales and then they might bring on other people and you get a commission on those people's sales. And she's charting this out on a, on a piece of paper in front of me. And this person was totally baffled when I'm, uh, I was sitting at a Starbucks and I said to her, uh, you know, this is a pyramid scheme, right? And she had charted this out to the point that I could literally, and did, I drew a pyramid around this to say, you know, look, it's a pyramid. She still didn't see it. She thought she was going to make an absolute fortune selling protein powder. So, and the reason I say that, because when, when I'm in a situation here where somebody has employment and has self-employment income, my concern is if we're pegging a certain dollar value in terms of income for support, is it fair in this situation to say her income for support purposes would be 78000 her employment income, plus her business income on a go-forward basis? And is that reasonable? And I'm not sure about that. So... If it's a real product or service being created, I'm treating this as a more viable entity, which means I want to get a basic understanding of what's going on. So the first thing to me is if she's earning $52,000 in revenue, what expenses are being deducted? So you indicated that there are personal expenses from the home that are being run through the business. But for me, I say, well, are these expenses reasonable for the space that she's taking up. So what's the square footage of her home office? What expenses are being declared pertaining to the home? I'm expecting that some adjustments here as people tend to overstate their expenses on tax returns. So they'll claim the whole basement or something as a home office and deduct a third of the house when realistically it's, uh, it's a 10 foot by 10 foot room uh, downstairs. And, and therefore these expenses are being over deducted. Same goes for automobile. Uh, same goes for cell phone. How much are these things really being used for business purposes? The bigger question here, I think is going to end up being down the line more because we're, we're stuck in this situation where there's two income streams and there's kind of a foot in each. So is Hillary's income, as I said, really her employment income plus the business income. So is it 78,000 plus, I don't know, say 35,000 in business? Or is it that the business, when it continues to grow and she takes it on full time, is it really something that's going to earn, let's call it $100,000 a year, right? Because that would be less than 113 under the first. Or will the business fail and she keeps her current job, which puts it at 78? Or it still fails and she loses her job and then it's zero. It's hard to say because her range of income over the next few years, and as you had indicated, this clause in these agreements to share this income on a, on a go forward basis is really important because Hillary in this case could have an income of zero next year, or it could be $300,000 and we don't know, but we should assess it as it were today. I agree with everything you've said. And if she is the payor of support, and in the year we're discussing, she's being pegged with both her employment income and her net business income. If in the following year her, her business doesn't do as well, she will want that brought to the attention of the recipient so that she says, hey, last year my income for support purposes included some income from my business, but now the pyramid scheme has fallen apart and I'm not, 
earning that anymore. The support recipient, assuming Hillary is paying support, will want to keep an eye on the issue as well. He or she will want to be vigilant and see how the business is doing. And if in the following year it's actually doing as well or perhaps even better, then they will want to catch that as well because they will want that to translate to an adjustment to child support, meaning more child support because there is more income. I see you're nodding your head. I think we're in agreement. So let's talk a bit more about a reference I made earlier, and that's the child support guidelines. So let's expand. In Canada, we have the federal child support guidelines, and each province has its own provincial guidelines as well. Which set of guidelines applies to your specific case will depend on whether you are married or not, and also sometimes the stage of your case. I'm going to leave it at that for the moment, because if I go any further, we will be getting beyond our subject for today. The language of the federal and provincial guidelines is virtually identical, so we can talk about them both in general terms. In addition to giving us guidance for how support is calculated, the guidelines also contain rules on how income is to be calculated. So, for example, permissible deductions from income in a family law case are set out in a schedule to the guidelines. The guidelines were designed by the government to give us all a roadmap. Yes, I use that word a lot because I like it. A roadmap for Canadians to have consistent calculations of child support throughout the country. Because before the guidelines were passed in 1997, there was no such consistency. Let me introduce another example of income, and we're going to use it in the case of Sam, the man from the first hypothetical. He is the factory worker. Sam owns a second home on the outskirts of town, which he inherited from his grandmother. He rents it out to two separate tenants because in addition to the main part of the house, there's also a finished basement with a separate entrance. In total, Sam brings in $4,500 a month in cash from the rentals. Sam's now separated wife, Ella, knows about the house and the rental income. Sam does not report it on his income tax return. Ryan, speak to us, please, about the income issues here. Uh, Well, Sam has been a naughty boy because this should definitely be reported on his income. You can't just collect cash payments for something and not have it be taxed in some way. So, but from, from a family law perspective, what we're talking about here is income that's coming from uh, an inheritance, right? And at least in this case, inheritances, I mean, generally aren't included in, in a matrimonial net family property unless it's been diluted to some degree in the matrimonial home. But the fact that it's being used to generate additional income brings this into question. So if the will or a state specifically, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if it's stipulated that not just the property, but the income from the property was part of the inheritance, I think it would be exempted out, or at least there would be an argument for that. But since it's not, and presumably I don't think it would be as, as most wouldn't speculate in an estate like that, the income from the property here should be included in the income for support. But the big question that's overhanging, he's collecting what, 4,500 by close to $54,000 a year in, in income. But what are the costs? I mean, clearly there's property tax, maybe there's utilities, maintenance, et cetera. What's the net uh, cash profit after paying for some of these expenses? And 
I mean, the big sort of overhanging and, and looming issue might be that there's a contingent tax liability here if CRA uh, figured out this little cash scheme and reassessed his tax returns on this basis. So you raised an important point about income when it's generated from what we call excluded property. So for equalization purposes, folks, that's the formula I've talked about before in Ontario for, to use a commonly used phrase, dividing assets and liabilities. Excluded property is a special type of asset, which is treated in a unique way by the equalization formula. And in very simple terms, the value is not shared. And there are circumstances in which income from such excluded property is not shared either, but there has to be a specific provision in the will for that. You raise the question of whether such a provision would shield the rental income that Sam is generating for support purposes. And I think the answer is no. I don't think that a family court would permit a payor to exclude, in this case, a sizable portion of his income by having grandma include a clause in her will excluding that income. I think the provision in the Family Law Act was meant for a different situation. But you raise an interesting point, and I'm going to look into it further. There was another point you raised, which I have now forgotten. Maybe it will come to me later in our interview. Oh, yes, you had talked about expenses that Sam is incurring. So I was going to ask you, but you've covered this off already, uh, another twist to our hypothetical, and that is one where Sam actually reports the monthly rental income on his income tax return. If if that were the case, do you agree with me that he would be able to deduct legitimate corresponding rental expenses? Of course, anything that's a, a real expense here would be deductible. Absolutely. So in a sense, by not, I mean, presumably Sam made some mathematical calculation in his head because by not reporting the rental income on his income tax return, uh, he doesn't pay tax on the amount, but he also doesn't get to deduct legitimately uh, incurred rental expenses, right? Yeah, right. But uh, I think, I mean, often when people do this sort of thing, they're not thinking that CRA might catch on. And especially with rental income, where you can claim a rental deduction if you're under a certain tax bracket in Canada, it's highly likely that this will be caught at one point or another. So Sam is being uh, short-minded, let's call it, or short-sighted. When, you know, let's say the property earns $30,000 per year, he would probably pay $7,500 to to perhaps $10,000 in income tax and have it show up on his tax return. And by by not declaring that, you may run into a situation where if he's reassessed, there'll be substantial interest and penalties on top of that. So there could be a, a really major hit to his, his, I mean, his assets at the end of the day if CRA were to catch on. So that's a concern that I would have in a proceeding like this. Good point. Very good point. So just to clarify for our listeners... Payer's obligation to pay support will be calculated on the basis of net after expenses income, but gross before taxes. So in Sam's example, if he were reporting this rental income on his income tax return, he would be permitted to take reasonable deductions, but the rental income would still be shown on a before taxes basis, correct, Ryan? Yeah, always before tax uh, for the support calculations. And I'm just, I'll circle back to what we were talking about earlier. The aim here of the guidelines and what we're doing, again, is to decode these tax planning and related issues. So we want to know pre-tax income because that puts everybody on the same and, and relatively even playing ground here, playing field. 
Let's get even further into your area of expertise, Ryan, which is forensic accounting. So here is our last hypothetical. And I tried to put some interesting facts into this one so we can further illustrate some issues and challenges around income calculations. And I see you're perking up again. We touched on some of these challenges when we last spoke, but this is a great chance to take a closer look. In our last hypothetical, Karma runs a business, and more precisely, Karma and her business partner, Lotus, run a business together. They manufacture and sell yoga mats and various other accessories related to yoga. The customers, the buyers of these products, report that There is something about them, something that helps them drop down into a focused meditative state when they are practicing their yoga. Whether that is actually true or not, the business has taken off and Karma and Lotus now have 15 employees and they rent a building where the products all made in Canada are manufactured and packaged and from which they are shipped. Karma and Lotus are equal shareholders in the business, which is actually incorporated. The business is called Prithvi, after the Hindu goddess of the earth and representing nurturing and productivity. My husband actually approved this hypothetical name, though he did not like the name of the business Mimi and Martha ran in our last chat together, Ryan. (laughs) As expected, the business prepares financial statements and files tax returns each year. There is no cash component to this business. In other words, all business revenues are reported on the financial statement and on the tax returns. Karma and Lotus do run every imaginable expense through their business, including many personal expenses. They are doing so well that they are able each year to leave a chunk of money in the business rather than pull it all out and be taxed on it. When you look at the company's latest financial statement, you can see that there is now a $250,000 GIC, and this represents income in the company, which Karma and Lotus chose not to take out over the last few years. Ryan, take it away and tell us what you see here. Well, firstly, I wish I had a name like Karma because I feel like that would be a great name for a forensic accountant. Like what goes around comes around. Karma's always going to catch you. I would love. <laughs> interesting, interesting point, says the Buddhist. Go ahead. Uh, but in all seriousness, I, you know what? This question comes up a lot. And often with self-employed cases, what we're dealing with are two distinct entities. So we're dealing with the person and we're dealing with the corporation. So the question here at its source is, is the corporate income attributable to whomever the owner or owners may be? So the, the question to some degree hinges on what the business plans are and its plans for the future. So, Beyond dealing with the personal expense component, I'm now looking at the, what are we doing with this $250,000 GIC amount? So what I want to know is, does the business need the income for operations or some sort of capital reinvestment, right? Because if they need the money to expand capacity, get into retail location, something like that, then there would be an argument to say that it wouldn't be included in an income for support or attributable, this additional chunk. But it seems like this is just an additional sort of profit nest egg that they've sat aside because they don't need the money personally at the moment. So to me, we have a a really strong argument to say that this $250,000 earned in profit over the past several years should be attributable to income for support. But realistically, we can't just do it all in one year. We have to see when the money is being made. So if it were over the past three years, 
perhaps it's evenly across all of the year. So that would be uh, $87,500, I think, hopefully, or 82. No. Well, anyway. So if it's even, then you'd break it out evenly. Or if it were, say, 50000 and then 100000 and 100000 then you'd attribute it on a yearly basis and, and derive an average off of that. And we would remember that they are equal shareholders. And so only one half of those earnings, those earnings which they chose to leave in the business, would be attributable to karma if the family law case is about her, right? She wouldn't be attributed with the whole amount held back. I think that's what you meant. Well, if it if it were the case that they are equal shareholders, and and to me, I, I read that as that they are equal partners in the business in the sense that they're sharing decision-making capability and that sort of thing. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And there was another point that you touched on. Anyway, let's move on. It will probably come to me. I uh, seem to be uh, somehow challenged today. I'm just not my regular sparkly personality, Ryan, and I'm so glad you make up for that. So, what else? <laughs> I need to what? I need to restate my eighty-seven and a half to eighty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three dollars. Uh, Are you worried about that now? That an yeah, account well, couldn't divide two fifty by three? Yes, yes. You know these things. So, what's come the up, right number? What's the right it's number? It's eighty-three, three 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 point three three. Great. And the point that are are coming back to this just made me remember what I was going to talk about. And I lost it again. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, now I know. And when you initially talked about the hypothetical, Ryan, you also raised the point that there are some businesses which need to leave some money in them, so to speak, because they need that money for operations. So when you are, it's a common example family law lawyers use when we explain this concept. If you're a widget manufacturer, and you need to purchase the raw material from someone, it is not unreasonable to expect that the widget business would have to have some operating cash, so to speak. Okay, In that case, the owner of the business would say, there is good business reason, operational reason, for me to have this money left in the business. The point you raised was a very clever one, and that is, the fact that they have put this money in a GIC, which we presume is locked for a period of time to earn them a favorable rate of interest, means that they don't need this money for operations, right? They are op- they're, they're manufacturing things, yoga mats and other uh, yoga-related items. So there is probably part of their business which involves purchasing raw material, perhaps, But this specific GIC, by placing the funds in an investment, I think they've demonstrated that the money isn't necessary for them in the short term to maintain operations. Anything else about this hypothetical, Ryan? No, I think that that pretty much covers it from my end. I mean, a part of that, a part of that question is going to be vetting that point as to whether or not let's say in in the hypothetical if we changed it that they were planning or perhaps karma said that they were planning to to expand to retail locations right and lotus says that that's bullshit um then we need to vet that preposition or presumption to say you know is that retail expansion something that's been planned in advance or is this uh one of those cases where somebody is putting forward a plausible idea to advance a position to lower their income for support. So it'd be good to see some sort of backup documentation or or try to get an idea as to whether or not that's realistic. But that's a question for another podcast. And I will respond briefly to say that if I acted for the support recipient in this case, and Karma, for example, as a business owner, said, well, I need to leave all kinds of money inside the business because we are interested in opening three retail locations. My argument before the court would be, well, great for the business, but I'm not sure the expansion should take place at the expense of the children's child support entitlement. In other words, 
you know, if you want to expand, that's great, but your child support obligation comes first. So that's an interesting argument before the court, but perhaps, as you said, a subject for another episode. So, Ryan, so far we've been talking about child support, but the courts have adopted the same approaches to spousal support as well, have they not? Yeah, I mean, the process in terms of income is is essentially the same. One thing, though, uh, that's important is that the guidelines for child support really put an emphasis on the children's security, right? So the actual calculation of support payments and that sort of thing are generally more favorable to the, to the children, and they're also more codified, i.e. you look it up in a schedule and you can, you know, calculate it to a specific number. And I'm not, you know, generally involved in these things, but... With special support, it's a bit more open-ended. So there's more of an advisory range, I believe, for certain income levels and, and how the support payments work and, and how it may fall into a certain area, right? Yes, we do have spousal support advisory guidelines, but I can tell you from the perspective of family law lawyer that the same calculations are used by judges to calculate income for support purposes in courts across the country as they are for uh, child support. So yeah, the income, uh, the income question is the same. I think just the, the support denomination itself, how it's derived, I think is a little bit different, right? Yes, you're right in the sense that the advisory guidelines have a range of numbers and the choice of high, mid or low depends on the circumstances of a specific case and judges have the ability to depart from the ranges as well. So from that perspective, the child support guidelines are a bit more black and white, if I can put it that way, than are the spousal support advisory guidelines. Let's circle back to a point I made at the beginning, which was that sometimes CRA treats the calculation of income differently than family court would. So let's clarify this point in practical terms. The business run by Lotus and Karma has never been audited. So in practical terms, they have both been able to successfully deduct without questions so far from the CRA, the expenses that they have shown in the financial statements of the business. In other words, CRA has permitted those deductions, but family court may not. Am I right about that, Ryan? Yeah. So here, I think what you're getting at is is how we're dealing with two very different things, right? So is the fact that no audit from CRA has happened yet, is that evidence that the books are fine from a personal expenses perspective or for family law purposes? No. Uh, we know from the case facts that Karma and Lotus are running several personal expenses through the business and are reducing their tax burden as a result, Right. And before I jump down this uh, tax rabbit hole here, I just want to say quickly, I don't really have an ethical dilemma about running personal expenses through the business. If you're doing it, uh, I don't care from a forensic accounting perspective, but I do care when it comes to, to family law. And I want to make sure that the number that we're calculating here is accurate. So what we're dealing with, and we have a term for this absence of evidence in accounting called assurance and assurance there are two types of it. There's positive assurance and there's negative assurance. So positive, positive would be if CRA, let's say, had done a full-blown tax audit of the company for the last, let's say, three years, right? Did anything come up? Was there a reassessment? Did they find these personal expenses, et cetera? So in this case, you have positive assurance from someone who's invested in this, i.e. the government and CRA, that... They've diligently reviewed things, audited the records, or at least some of them for a certain period of time, right? So if I saw that and there were no reassessments, I would have some positive assurance that things aren't too far off the beaten trail here. So there's stronger evidence. Negative assurance. So the, the absence of there being an issue, i.e. CRA hasn't yet audited it, or they just haven't been caught yet, in other words, with these personal expenses going through the business. That's a different animal. So if you think of um, if you think of Bernie, Bernie Madoff, is the fact that before he was caught, 
evidence that he was not committing fraud or engaged in a Ponzi scheme? No, the evidence came when people actually looked into it, right? So for a period of time, they were doing, Bernie Madoff was uh, stealing money, but no one was was the wiser. And the same would apply here, right? So for a period of time, they're over deducting expenses and CRA just hasn't caught on yet. So they're being naughty. But for for CRA specifically, and this would be a good background for people on how CRA looks at tax returns and, and assessments, they actually have an AI system in the background. So when you submit a corporate tax return or a personal tax return, what they're doing is that they're actually running your results against comparative industry data. And if anything shows up that's sort of out of the ordinary and within their audit profiling risk, it's going to pull it up as a red flag. And you'll likely get perhaps a review letter, or if it's too egregious, you might get a full-blown audit from that. So the fact that there hasn't been a full-blown audit yet gives me a little bit of comfort that their personal expenses aren't you know, overly outrageous considering the size of the company, i.e. you know, they're not declaring uh, a Lamborghini or something as a motor vehicle expense, but it does tell me that you know, perhaps there may be some smaller and more minor changes are, are necessary in our forensic investigation for family law purposes. So, and one of the things to point out is that what looks to be major or minor for CRA and the grand scheme of things is a lot different than it would be for family law. So when I look at it, uh, if you're looking from, from CRA's perspective, whether or not you pay $10,000 of tax or $50,000 in tax to CRA, the money itself is actually irrelevant. I mean, $40,000 to CRA, who cares? Uh, they're dealing with tens, hundreds, and, and perhaps billions of dollars per year. They lose $5 million. Uh, they probably wouldn't even notice. But if it's multiplied over thousands of people, obviously, it's a different story. However, for family law, $10,000 to $50,000 is a huge difference. You're dealing with a major difference in support, uh, payments, child support, special support. So our threshold is a lot more accurate and it's a lot more focused because these incremental changes have a very real and meaningful material impact to the calculations. The positive and negative assurance you raised, uh, and I'm very glad you did, these are often defenses used in family court by business owners whose income is being calculated. So we often hear, well, I was audited by CRA within the last three years and they found nothing. So that is proof that my books are clean. Or that the reverse of that, I've never been audited, so that proves my books are clean. So we hear this all the time. But as in your Bernie Madoff example, Bernie was naughty and he didn't get caught for a long time. And uh, when he did, there was a problem. So I don't close my book and put down my pen when I hear one of those defenses. I think it's important to pursue further the idea that somebody may be putting personal expenses through the business and for family law purposes, for the purposes of calculating support, uh, that may not be a proper deduction. You have been a wealth of information once again, Ryan, as you were the last time. I thank you very much for that. I want to mention another topic we may want to handle in the future, a very timely topic, and that is cryptocurrency. Again, a great idea from you. I appreciate it. Cryptocurrency will become increasingly relevant in family law, and there will be, for example, issues around valuing it. So it will be interesting tackling that subject with you, Ryan. I'm excited to do it. It's uh, one of the things that keeps me up at night in this in this world. Hmm, that's interesting to hear. Cryptocurrency doesn't keep me up at night, but maybe over time it will. When we first spoke, I asked you my three classic questions, Ryan, about food. So we know already about your love of prime rib and your 25 trips to the buffet as a child. <laughs> 
um, I thought I would remind my listeners about that. Let's do something a little different today. And since you mentioned Nashville in our first interview, and we got into Blake Shelton and Gwen Stefani, I thought we might carry on along that country music path. So I'm going to ask you three trivia questions about modern country music. Are you ready? Uh, I'm ready and thinking to myself, thank God you aren't asking me to sing right now. <laughs> uh, you don't know that I'm not going to ask you to do that. So no, should I answer question. these in like a country drawl or? However you want. That's absolutely open here. I am open-minded generally. You can answer any way you want. So here's question number one. Where did it all begin for Carrie Underwood? On what TV show did she get her start? Uh, I remember something to do with Simon Cowell, right? So I can't remember if it was American Idol or X Factor, but I think she was like a Simon Cowell protege, so to speak. Yeah, you're right. It was American Idol. And if I recall correctly, she competed against one of my favorites from American Idol. And I haven't watched that show in years now, but that person was Bo Bice. He was a very, very talented young man and had a lot of promise and I thought he would carry on with his music career, but alas, he did not. She had Here's, like the divorce, yes. uh, the divorce anthem, I think for mostly for women, like the, uh, I'm going to burn your car and slash the tires and oh, all that I need kind to of stuff. Into that. This, she this became is, very uh, popular for that song. Yes. Uh, Carrie Underwood is uh, a very interesting person in many respects. I'm not, a huge country music fan per se. It's not my music of choice. It's not that I don't like it. That's not what I'm saying. It's I picked these questions because you brought up Nashville and I was very intrigued by your initial reference. So here's question number two. Who apparently landed a helicopter on Johnny Cash's lawn to deliver a music demo? Clearly a singer-songwriter anxious to get Johnny's attention. Uh, yeah. You know what? This was a really big swing. And I know this one. I know this one. I'm happy. Um, and it's an infamous story. Let me back up for a sec. You know what's funny about country music, right? Is that you've got this, um, you have this sort of juxtaposition of how it's perceived by people, which is, you know, very conservative. And you're singing about pickup trucks and beer and fields of corn and tractors, tractors. and yeah tractors. yeah exactly yeah tractors. yeah it's like uh, love ballads to tractors that sort of thing and it, it definitely is but the the singers who have made it all have a really weird and wild streak to them um and there's always some sort of crazy story attached to a lot of these people that you wouldn't necessarily know right so i mean i think johnny cash people know because of the the movie and the drugs and the alcohol and all that stuff. Jerry Lee Lewis was one of like the founders of country music who I think, I think he got DUI because he crashed into Elvis's property or something in his Cadillac. And uh, he was arrested. Um, Tim McGraw and Kenny Chesney were arrested in Buffalo for assaulting police officers. Uh, a lot of these big names have really done some wild stuff and country music people seem to have this like run in with the law type personality. Anyway. So I can't remember the setup here with um, Johnny cash. Uh, yeah. Okay. Helicopter. So I think it was Chris Christopherson. Bing, 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 bing. You got and it right. Yeah. It wasn't he, I think he was a Marine or he was in the armed forces or something at the time. And he was like an aspiring singer songwriter and I guess when he was at work or on the base, he stole the helicopter to fly over to Johnny Cash's. And it was sort of like one of these big swings to, you know, I'm finally going to make it. And I think it actually worked out because Johnny Cash ended up recording the song and the rest is history. And of course, Chris Christopherson had a career of his own. So uh, it probably paid off. You're right. I didn't know about the... Uh, stealing the helicopter part, but uh, oh yeah, no, uh, it, he totally stole it. Yeah, it 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 is indeed Chris Christopherson, <laughs> and or question, it. he brought it back. Oh uh, yes, yeah, I think <laughs> there would have been some repercussions if he hadn't brought it back. 
what does one do with a stolen helicopter anyway? Here's question number three. Reba McIntyre almost missed her debut at the Grand Ole Opry in 1977. Do you know why? No, I was at the Opry. Uh, in 77? No, no, <laughs> no. I wasn't there in 77. I wasn't born yet. But the you know what's funny with with certain buildings, uh, the Opry. Um, I mean, even if you think about standing in a place with with provenance right so if you're standing in the oval office at the white house if you're standing in uh, the coliseum in rome something like that you can kind of feel that presence and and uh history of the place resonate out towards you and it, it's a really neat feeling i wish we had more of those places in canada because there really aren't too many historical iconographic locations here but what's the story Uh, before I give you the answer, I'm going to say I get that feeling uh, standing in the Court of Appeal in Toronto. And if you've never been, Ryan, I strongly encourage you to visit. It's a, it's a beautiful building, first of all. It's on Queen Street, at roughly at the corner of University and Queen. And it's a very special place for us lawyers, Ontario lawyers, of course. But I think you would feel special about it too. So if you are ever interested in a little walk around downtown Toronto, Court of Appeal is the place to visit. And there are also guided tours there uh, if anyone is interested. The answer to the Reba McIntyre question is she was an unknown at the time and she was held back for security reasons. Nobody knew who she was and she oh. wasn't on the guest list. So she almost didn't make it in. No kidding. That's the reason. What are the odds? I'm actually, you know, I'm surprised at how being in that situation, right? It's the right place at the right time and she managed to squeeze in. And that must have been extraordinarily stressful. Yes. And by the sounds of it, I, I, I'm sure her performance on that day had something to do with her then very successful career and and she's still at it so you're right who among us would be able to withstand that kind of stress and still put in a memorable performance it would be uh, tough it would be tough Ryan, I, have a, i have a story for you yes go ahead you ready i look forward to it um this one is maybe in the family law spectrum of things did you ever hear of a singer um he's a country guy he's named trace adkins I I have, but if you ask me to name any of his songs, I couldn't do that. But the name sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if I know any of his songs offhand. He has a really super deep voice. Like he's maybe two octaves below me. Um. Anyway, he was on. I think he was on Celebrity Apprentice with uh, with your favorite person, Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, so. Uh, so the story was, I think Trace Atkins was like an alcoholic or something, right? And typical, typical country music singer. And I think he promised his then spouse that he'd quit drinking and broke it. And his wife was, uh, perhaps shall we say displeased at this after figuring it out. So I guess they had a bit of an argument of sorts, which ended with his wife in country music fashion, pulling a gun, Right. Because why wouldn't you pull a gun for this sort of thing? And I think he tried, I don't know if he tried to grab it, but in any case, surprise, surprise, the gun went off and he was shot through the heart. Like the song and survived. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. <laughs> <laughs> It's a crazy First, story. I am going to ask, did he survive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He survived. Yeah. He's healthy. Yeah. Yes, I thought he was still alive, but who grabs a gun? I mean, who tries to grab a gun? That's just plain crazy. The whole thing is crazy. Probably a I drunk agree. person tries to grab a gun, right? Before I send you off into this beautiful spring day, Ryan, I want to make it perfectly clear to my listeners. Now, I'm just going back. You are laughing. I can see you laughing. And you know what I'm going to straighten out right now, and that's the Trump reference. Of I course. Am, Everyone knows I was kidding. I am not a fan of Donald Trump. In case there is any misunderstanding about this point, in fact, 
quite the opposite. But let's not get off on that tangent. I uh, want to thank you sincerely and seriously, Ryan, for taking time again to work with me through these hypotheticals. There's obviously a lot of preparation on your part for these episodes, and I appreciate it. And I look forward to having you back. And uh, we can discuss the premeditated divorce. We can discuss uh, cryptocurrency, anything else you'd like. There is, of course, another area we can cover together, and that is business valuation for the purposes of property division. So that is another potential topic for us. I hope you had fun. Thank you for having me. I had a great time and I love uh, I love being here. And did you really go to the buffet 25 times? I set that up for you. Uh, it wasn't 25. It wasn't 20. I think it was seven or eight. Seven it or was eight. 13. Oh, was it 13? Yeah. See, yes. I, yeah. Whatever it was the first time, that was the correct one because I had asked my mom shortly before that. Oh, and she confirmed it? She confirmed Yeah, she said 13. She said 13. So I'm standing by 13. That's why I, when I said 25, I thought you would catch that. But you were obviously uh, paying attention to the topic at hand, which was income. And I appreciate that very much. So Ryan, I look forward to having you again. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.